0: Last week, we began a new series called Far From the Shallow. And in this series, we are diving into the deep end of the pool, trying to understand the beginning of the universe and the role that we play within the universe as found in the book of Genesis. Today, we come to chapter one of Genesis which is the first telling of the creation story. There's another telling of the creation story in chapter 2 that we'll get to next week. But I want to begin with a statement that will help us through this whole study while we're in Genesis. And it's a very important statement. Nostalgia is a terrible hermeneutic. Nostalgia is a terrible human hermeneutic. Now, hermeneutic is a big word that means principles of interpretation. We often hear things like the Bible says or the Bible clearly teaches. Now, I have a Bible right here. As it sits there, it says nothing. It doesn't clearly say anything until I engage with it, until I read it. And once I begin to read it, then one of the things that I need to do is interpret it even as I read it. And to do that, I need good principles of interpretation. Our interpretation methods can be either good or bad, and it will determine what the Bible is saying, if we can use that as a metaphor. Now, as human beings, we are subject to nostalgia. And we often interpret things dependent upon what we have been told, sometimes, for our entire lives. Now, when we come to the subject of creation, there is a lot of nostalgia that we find. One of the things that we think is that the Bible is, number one, literal when it's talking about creation. And number two, we just take it straightforward and we think the way we are interpreting it is the way the original hearers would have heard it as well. However, a better illustration of what is going on is often found in the literature that surrounds the nation of Israel. Not just what's in the Bible, but also surrounding it. The better principle of interpretation especially in ancient literature, is asked this question, what did it mean to the original hearer? What did it mean to the original hearer? What issues were they facing that frames their thinking? What is it that is their umwelt? That's a German word that means the way they see the world, the way they look at life, the way they interpret it. What is their umwelt? So we all have an umwelt. You have an umwelt, I have an umwelt, all God's children have an umwelt. In other words, it's the way we interpret the world in which we're living. And we need to keep that in mind, especially as we open the passages in Genesis. You see, Christians are often trained to think that Genesis is best interpreted this way. God made a ball of cosmic Plato appear, and then poof, out of nowhere, he creates the entire universe. Now we know something, that the ancient mind, their umwelt, the way they saw the world, was that God was not creating out of nothing, but he was beginning to shape something out of something. So the right way to kind of approach Genesis chapter 1 is to listen to verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, when we open Genesis chapter 1 and read those first two verses, we are walking into the middle of something that's already going on. We do not begin with a whole lot of nothing, What we're talking about here is something that is formless and empty, as the NIV interprets. It's tovu vavohu in Hebrew, and maybe a better way of translating it into English is it's chaotic. In other words, chaos is already in control, and we need to understand that to the ancient reader, The creation story, as it's divided into two parts, days one through three and days four through six, is how God takes chaos and brings about the cosmos. So the title of today's message is From Chaos to Cosmos. And what we're talking about here is understanding the way the ancient hearer would have understood their world. Now, we need to understand first and foremost that the ancient way of looking at the universe was not determined through telescopes or space stations. They understood the world with the naked eye. And as they looked at it, they saw that there was what was above them and what they were on. So this is often called the firmament in the book of Genesis. But throughout the entire Bible, And this is very important to understand. Throughout the entire Bible, there's not a single instance in which God revealed to Israel a science beyond their own culture. This is so important, I need to say it again. Throughout the entire Bible, there's not a single instance when God revealed to Israel a science beyond their own culture. So we must take the text on its own terms. The ancient Israelite is not worried about evolution. It's not on the radar. They are not worried about the age of the earth. It's not on their radar. They're not worried about how we revolve around the sun. They don't know that yet. So if that is true, the many questions that concern us when we come to the book of Genesis isn't even on their radar. So I tried to come up with a way of visualizing this and I think the way to visualize this is first and foremost to understand the term that is used here formless and empty or formless and void it is sometimes called that there is not a story of creation in the ancient world that starts with nothing and goes to something and so What is true in the Babylonian creation accounts, what's true in the Egyptian creation accounts, and what is true in the Hebrew creation account is also uh, an understanding of how God or gods, and I'll give to you a background of that in a couple of moments, overcomes chaos and gives to it order and purpose. And that's an entirely different question than we often bring to the text. This God that is mentioned in Genesis is not a part of a pantheon of gods worshiped in the ancient Near East, but the one true God that is given a name, actually several names in the book of Genesis. And he is the one that takes this space that's already there and makes it habitable. In other words, there is something there, but it cannot be productive for human life. So, what is it that God does? to make it inhabitable for them. So, in days one through three, God is going to create some space. In days four through six, he's going to fill that space with creatures. And that's important to keep in mind. In the liturgy that I sent out to you, there's a chart, and you can look at it at this point. But I want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we go to a video illustration that I did this past week. So how do we illustrate to the modern mindset what the thinking is of the ancient mindset? Do you like the game of Monopoly? That's what this illustration is about. So we're going to cut away to the video at this time. Welcome, everyone, to the Posa family room. At this point in the sermon... I want to use our family room and this cluttered table as an illustration. Remember I began this message with this statement, nostalgia is a terrible hermeneutic. Again, hermeneutic is just a big word for principle of interpretation. Now when we look at Genesis chapter 1, nostalgia is the rendering of the text like this. It is. This imagination that God created everything out of nothing. It's sort of God speaks and poof, the cosmos is present. But that's not the way Genesis 1 records. In a few moments, I'm going to show you a chart. And you're going to see that the way we reckon time and space, according to the sun and the moon and the stars and the rotation of the earth and all that type of thing, doesn't come until day four. So what's going on? So let's illustrate by inviting you over to dinner. We've had dinner and we ask the question, what do we want to do? And somebody comes up with the great idea of, hey, let's play Monopoly. Now talk about a vintage game, goes way back, but we have to find space to play this game. So let's say we want to play around this table, it's not the most comfortable table, but Hey, we can all gather around it and we can play. The problem is this table is cluttered and it's full of chaos. There's magazines and completed crossword puzzles, there's a candle, there's some Cleveland Brown coasters, there is an iPad mini, and there is some type of offbeat catalog. There is, of course, the most important thing, all the remote controls. But you'll see, as I clear this table, and if I was really doing this proper, I'd get a paper towel, and I'd get some Windex, because Windex is good for everything, including cuts. Uh, And I'd wipe this thing down, and there'd be no stickies on it. And I'd create space. Now we're ready to play the game. Oh, no, not yet. Not everything is set yet. So now we have to take the game and we have to open it. That's if I can get this top off. And we take out the game board. And as we open the game board, we begin to see the pieces of playing the game of Monopoly are in place. But nothing is set up yet. All I've done so far is create space. Well, you know the next thing that we need to do. We need to count out the money and whoever gets the lucky responsibility of being the banker has to separate all the money out, 10s and 5s and 20s and so on and so forth. And now we're ready to play the game. No, we've created space, we begin to organize some things, but we still have to put some things in place. And you know what those things are? Ah, the chance cards. And then secondly, the community chess cards have to be put in place. Now we're ready to play the game, right? No. We've created space. We began to organize everything. And yet, the thing that we still need to do is to get out the property cards. And we put the property cards in place. Now we're ready to play the game. No. No, still not ready. We need a couple of dice to be able to play the game. No, we're still not ready. Things have been organized. The board has been filled. Space has been created. But now you have to pick out a piece. And as you pick out a piece, here's the top hat, and you can put it on go. And that's where the game begins. And when you have put all the pieces in place, it is then you begin to move the pieces around the board. Now, in relationship to Genesis chapter 1, we see the first three days of creation that God is creating space. He's putting things in place, but this creation has not been filled yet. All we see is taking place at this point is that there is a place for the pieces to be placed in days uh, 4, 5, and 6. Then we see the pieces starting to move, and as in the game of Monopoly, then you begin to put your hotels and your houses in place. And of course, that takes a little bit of time. In fact, it takes a long time. And so you begin to collect these properties and you begin to put these houses in place, and then you begin to really play the game. All I'm talking about is process. And in this process, in Genesis chapter 1, it is an ancient mindset of how God puts all the pieces in place. At first, there's chaos, it has to be cleared away, space has to be created. The board has to be put in place. Pieces have to be ready before the actual creation of mankind and the command to be fruitful and multiply. Take a look at this chart. I think you'll find it helpful as we think about Genesis chapter 1. Welcome back. So, if you have the liturgy and you saw this chart also at the very end of the video, you'll notice that in Genesis chapter one, the movement from chaos to cosmos can be illustrated by God clearing the table and setting up the game. And in days one through three, God creates space. In days four through six, God fills that space. So, on day one, God creates space for the sun, the moon, and the stars. We call that the cosmos, or the universe. Listen, it says, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So there's nothing about the sun, moon, and stars at this point, but yet there is this mention of light and darkness. So there's something that is already there, this formlessness, this void, this emptiness, and God begins to separate whatever this means. I can't explain this. Whatever this means, he begins to separate the light from the darkness. And then on day four, we find that in that expanse, He will create the sun and the moon and the stars. On day two, God creates space for the birds and the sea creatures. Notice it says here, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning, a second Day. So on day two, God creates the space, and on day five, He fills that space, both air and sea, with creatures. Day three goes on, and it's a little bit longer, but every time God finishes a day, He calls it good. Remember at the beginning of our service, I mentioned the word Tov. It's good. In day three, what we find is that there is um, a movement of the oceans to the side to allow dry land to appear. And then day six, what we see taking place is the creation of land animals as well as human beings. So, you can read Genesis chapter one day to day to day, and you can see this uh, Particular distinction, days one through three, space, days four through six, filling that space. Now, this is the essence of Genesis one, and it is what God uses to move from chaos to cosmos. At each point in the process, each day is called good. Now, the question comes up often in this text are these six 24 hour days? Again, that's nostalgia interpretation, because the way we measure 24-hour days is not actually created until day four. So in reality, days one through three does not produce anything to justify a 24-hour day. Now, the problem here comes in when we see science telling us that the entire cosmos is not hundreds of years old or thousands of years old, but millions and even billions of years old. And we said last week that it's important for us as followers of God to understand that he gives to us science to discover things. So we believe in scripture and science. We believe in faith and formation. So if you think science is lying to you about the age of the universe, that it's billions of years old, if somehow you think it's a conspiracy of some sort, well, then there's other issues we need to talk to you about, OK? Uh, we can't really honestly engage at a deeper level, Genesis chapter one. I believe the findings of science tells us something. It helps us understand the universe. It helps us understand how things came to be. However, it is from an ancient mindset. It's from an ancient viewpoint. With that in mind, what is the purpose then of Genesis chapter 1? If it's not to give to us a history of creation, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but there is no such thing in the Bible. There is no linear history of creation found in the Bible. Now. When we think about the Israelites, remember last week I mentioned that Genesis is not completed. It doesn't come fully together until they are ready to return to their homeland after being in exile in Babylon. Now, if Genesis was indeed sharply um, shaped um, largely by this trauma, of being in exile for 50 years, then we need to understand something. As they're coming back into the land, and as they want to give their devotion to the one true God that they believe in, Yahweh, his name will be revealed later to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, what we find then is the Babylonian captors had their own view of creation that was based on astrology, the sun, the moon, and the stars were gods. They were not that which was created by gods. And what we find is that in many ways, Genesis chapter 1 is kind of a, a punch at that Babylonian system. Um, what we find is that the Babylonians had their own creation account. It's called Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish. And Genesis chapter 1 is a not. On the Babylonians and other ancient Near Eastern religions as to how the universe came about. So, let me tell you a little bit about Enuma Elish because I think you'll find it fascinating. In the Babylonian account of creation, which predates the biblical account, it's far older than the biblical account, the god Marduk has this long standing grievance with his grandmother Tiamat, and they're fighting. And as they are fighting this uh, heavenly dysfunctional family, uh, didn't believe in going to counseling to work it out, they just used violence. And as we find this text going on, creation comes about as Marduk cuts the body of Tiamat in half, with half of her body, he makes a barrier to separate the waters. Now Israel's account has no violence. Everything is tov. Everything is good. Everything is very good. Israel's God is the great and mighty God who creates the cosmos, not out of some uh, deity fighting with another. It is coming about through God's power. There is no debate. There is no battle. There is no violence. Human beings are created not to be slaves. We find that in the Babylonian account, basically only the kings were made in the image of God. The rest of the population were basically just um, people that did the bidding of the gods. These were individuals that uh, are not divine image bearers. They are basically the people that do the grunt work Uh, that the gods are too good to do. So what we find, though, in the account here in Genesis chapter 1, as you move down into day 6, there is this wonderful verse that is uh, stated in verse 27. And it becomes the basis of dignity. It becomes the basis of love. It becomes the basis of doing good ourselves. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, chapter two, which we'll talk about next week, gives a second account of the creation of mankind. But I want you to note here that mankind is created with glory and with honor. We find even in the book of Psalms that it is mentioned that the human race is built with all of this capacity that we are made, as the psalmist says, a little lower than the angels. Take a listen. Psalm 8. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens from the lips of children and infants. You have ordained praise because of your enemies, to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the flocks and herds, and beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So when we think about the contrast between the ancient account of the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Israelites, what we see is that the Hebrew account is talking about the goodness of creation and in the rival myths of the ancient world evil is playing a role in the creation now we'll have to deal with the presence of evil later as it will be introduced in chapter 3 however what's most important to understand in all of this the first great revelation of the hebrew scriptures is that the universe flows entirely from the goodness of god evil plays no part in god's Good creation. So, what chapter one basically amounts to is this it's a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith in the ancient world. Genesis is an ancient statement of faith that the God of Israel alone is worthy of Israel's worship. Genesis one puts the brake on the fact that people tend to hate other people and mistreat other people, and use violence and power as a way of getting what they want. Genesis 1 puts a break on this and says that this one true God of a captive people is responsible for taming the chaos and bringing about the cosmos. Genesis 1 was not written to answer our curiosities about creation, but it is basically a poetical, polemical account. Let me say that again. It's not a historical, literal account. It is a polemical, poetical account. And when you think about this, the Israelites use their view of the universe as they understood it in their time and in their place to share with us how God brings us about. Now we need to uh, give the Israelites a break. We need to cut them some slack. This is a beautiful poetic poem with an apologetic flair. Remember that reading this story or hearing it, you can't add telescopes and space stations and land rovers and the images that it projects back to us on Earth. You just can't. All they could do is look up and see that the heavens are declaring the glory of God. So let's cut them some slack And let's give them a standing ovation for this literary gem that holds our imagination these centuries later. We still read it, and we still hear it, and our heart is still filled with praise because we are intentional. We are intentionally created by God. Now, how he does it is a different story. How long it takes for that is a different story. So what role does Genesis chapter 1 play in our contemporary society? Well, first observation, God creates space and then he fills it. Think about this. God does the same thing in our lives. The New Testament tells us that we are new creatures or new creations in Christ. Maybe one of the things that God does is create space and then fill it with something, hopefully filling it with Tov, that is something good. God often takes his time in that process, doesn't he? So let me ask a very reflective question for a moment. Where is God creating space in your world? And what does he want to fill it with? Or more importantly, what are you filling it with? So in the empty spaces of your own life, Are you filling it with good, or are you filling it with grievances of some sort? What clutter and misconceptions about life is being worked on in you right now? Are you numb to the hatred and the violence that we see going on around us? Are you numb to it? Well, if you are, maybe you have filled that empty space not with good, Maybe it's filled with grief or grievances or hate or something that constantly numbs you to what's going on around us. The Bible opens with a creation narrative to show us the goodness of this God that we worship. And the goodness of creation and the God who created it stands in contrast to the pagan creation stories. And all of creation is this gift That is flowing from the self giving love of God. He takes his time, he fills that space with goodness. And as his image bearers, we are to reflect his nature. And in the middle of our own chaotic times, we are to create good ourselves. The goodness that God is creating inside of us comes from the fact that Jesus, this one that Colossians tells us. Created the universe, became a man in flesh to show us a better way, to live a better life, to be someone that is not filling the empty spaces with grievances and hate, but with goodness and love. So I'd like to close our service today with this benediction. In the beginning, God created all things and God saw that it was good. At our beginning, God created us unique and irreplaceable, loved and wanted, known and treasured by a God. Even before he created us, the entire human race is considered to be very good. In our own new beginnings, God creates something new so that we will seek God in the freshness of each new day. Maybe the application of chapter one is when you get up each and every morning, there's an empty space. It's called the day ahead of you. It's filled with 24 more hours of empty space. And then we make the choice of what we're going to fill it with. Will we fill it with the laughter of friends and the color of creation? Will we fill it with love? and service, and honor, and respect, and dignity. Let's pray as we close. Lord God, King of creation, open our eyes to see your presence. Open our souls to sense your presence, and our hearts to love your presence. Even here, right now, in your creation, do all of this for us, and continue it on into eternity. Amen. Have a great day, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you online again soon. God bless you.